We're going to do a couple of things this Sunday. I'm going to do a new sermon series. We'll talk a little bit about um, All Saints as well. But the first thing I want to do is talk about this new sermon series. And in this one, we're going to be looking at some of the icons that we have in the church. Um, as one person put it, I think it was Christian, what's up with the icons? <laughs> We've had them for a little while, and I've been wanting to talk about them. hope that was okay, Christian. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's a good question. I've been wanting to talk about them for a couple of years, and I kind of keep pushing it off because something will come up that's more relevant. But yeah, we get to do the icons. And I thought that I would um, start us out by just sharing a story, and this is the one from Daniel chapter 3 because it relates to one of the icons. So I will share this one briefly, and I will tell it in story form. Once upon a time, there were three Jewish men, and they were serving in the government of a foreign empire. One day, the king of that empire, whose name was Nebuchadnezzar, decided that he was going to have a great big giant gold statue made. And it was going to be about 82 feet high. And I think the amounts given, it was going to be so thin that it actually probably wouldn't even stand up. But it's not necessarily factual, right? So an 82-foot-tall gold statue. And Nebuchadnezzar called together all of the leaders in his empire. And he told them that once they heard the sound of the royal band playing... Right, once the, the guitar and the drums and the violin or whatever instruments they had got going, um, that they were to bow down to this statue and worship it and to go out and to get all the other people in the land to do that too. Right, so these three men, whose names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or we have any VeggieTales fans in here, or Rack, Shack, and Benny, <laughs> I think they called them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as Jewish men, they were like, look, this is against our faith, and our conscience is not going to allow us to do that. So this infuriated the king, and he's like, if you guys don't bow when Led Zeppelin starts to play, you are going to be thrown into this blazing hot furnace. Well, of course, they still refuse. So then the emperor gets even more angry, right? And this fiery furnace is sort of like mimicking his anger. And so not only does he command for them to be thrown into this fiery furnace, but he says to the fiery furnace operators, I want you guys to crank this baby up seven times as hot. And so they do that. They go and they crank up this furnace. And then these men are told to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to put them into that furnace. And so they go up and do that. And we're told that it was so hot that as they brought them up there, that the men bringing them up actually died of heat. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were protected from the flames. Right, so the king who was watching this scene unfold, he says, whoa, three men were thrown in, but now I see four. Why are there four? And then we're told that there was an angel that was also in there protecting them. So King Nebuchadnezzar had those three men brought back out of the furnace, Rack, Shack, and Benny, and he made it known to everyone that these three could worship whatever God they wanted, since their God was apparently powerful enough to protect them from the flames. And then we're told that king gave them a promotion. So then they could go and oversee even more in the kingdom. And I don't know about you guys, but that is not a boss that I would want, and I don't think I would want to work for him anymore. But there they go, <laughs> rising up in the ranks. So lots of details tell us that this isn't a true story in a factual sense but that it's a story that's meant to be true on a little different level, right? So this is a story that was written relatively close to the time that Jesus lived, 
maybe 100, 150 years before he was born. It was actually written in the language Jesus spoke, which was Aramaic. And it was written down during a time when, you know, in Jerusalem was occupied by a hostile empire, Jerusalem and the area around it. And so one of the issues they were dealing with is as this other empire was occupying their territory, some of the Jewish priests and leaders, some of their high priests like Jason and the high priest Menelaus, they started colluding with these people of the empire to rob and to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. Right? And this is a story it's remembered every year at Hanukkah. I told it in pretty great detail um, during Lent last year, so you could find that online. And so that's the context in which this story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was written. So it was probably a response to these events that had been happening, right? So it's kind of like, okay, you see how some leaders, some of our leaders colluded with power to go and rob the temple? Don't be like them. Let me tell you a story about some men you should be like. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? These are honorable men. So one of the icons that we have at church here is called Daniel the Prophet and Three Holy Children. And I know that you will probably not all be able to just see this from your seats. But I'll hold it like this and then I can put it, I can put it up here so that you can look at it a little bit later. I rotate these in and out, but that is one of them. And so the Three Holy Children are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I bought that icon during the years and like Muslims were being banned from entering the country. And with asylum seekers were being turned away without due process. Parents were being separated from their children at the southern border, which, by the way, the immigration policies are not much better under Biden to be an equal opportunity critiquer, um, but they're at least not being torn um, from their parents at young ages here. I bought this during the years when white supremacists were carrying tiki torches and marching through the University of Virginia. And I thought, you know, Pretty much the entire Bible is anti-empire literature, almost all of it. And I thought, you know, we talk about it a lot in big picture, like Egypt, Babylon, Rome, but I was trying to figure out, like, is there a smaller story that we could remember in art form to remind us to stand up for the forces of empire? So immediately I thought about Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And so I bought that one to remind us of the importance of upholding values that we cherish as a community and as followers of Jesus. Values of love and decency, empathy, of making space for people of other faiths and other consciences, of courage in the face of injustice, and to uphold these values even in the most challenging of circumstances, right? It's like no matter how high the heat gets, if you do good and you do the right thing, the encouragement is God will be on your side. And when we see this icon, I just want us to remember that part of our faith is a calling to operate under a higher ethic of love, and that sometimes that takes real bravery. So it might seem a little bit weird for a church like ours to have icons at all. right? So I'm going to get to that, but I think it's helpful to have a brief sense of why they're used in general. So I know I throw out a lot of empires, and I'm a history person, so you don't need to know this, but it was under the Byzantine Empire which lasted more than 1,000 years, around 300 to 1450, for those of you who like dates. Um, pretty early on, in other words, in the church's history, churches started creating icons, which we know are just kind of fancy pictures meant to commemorate events or people who have died, and especially people who were remembered as important to the faith tradition, whose stories the believers wanted to remember. 
You know, they're often quite ornate. They often have like a gold plating on it. Ours obviously don't have gold plating on it, but um, some gold paint probably. There's a pretty distinct style to them that has been passed down since something like the 600s. And I am by no means an icon specialist and don't really have any interest in becoming one. Um, but it is my understanding that, especially since early on in the Eastern Church, there were like strict specifications and guidelines for how to create them, right? So that's why the faces tend to be stylized in a certain way. Even the folds of the clothing are said to communicate some kind of order or balance of the creator and of creation. And there have been arguments in the church over the course of time about the use of icons in worship. So the people who have opposed them have usually done so by saying, it seems like when we're using icons, it feels like maybe we're worshiping people rather than God. Right? And so that's been one side of it. This was underscored even more about 500 years ago when Protestantism came into being because some of the original founders of Protestantism um, interpreted icons as like uh, breaking the commandment to not have any idols. Right? So you'll, if you grew up in a Protestant church today, especially in the evangelical stream, you might see people balk a little bit at icons because they might view them as idolatry or something that's like a little adjacent to that. It's a little suspicious. Um, they certainly would have been viewed as a bit sus in the tradition that I grew up in. But on the other hand, people who have favored the use of icons, which by the way is the vast majority of global Christianity throughout history, they say that they help in a couple of important ways. I say, for one, they remind us of the interconnectedness of the divine and the human realms. Right? That they remind us that those who have gone before us are still with us in the communion of the saints, and we remember them. And two, icons initially became popular in centuries when most Christians were illiterate. And so they served as educational tools for people who couldn't read. So if you can imagine, if you couldn't read, so you didn't have access to scripture, and if much of your church service was being said in, say, Latin, how would you know the stories? Right? And so stories were captured in pictures, and then those served as memory tools, both for the Bible stories as well as stories about people who help people know, like, what's it mean to be Christian? Right? So if you ask, like, what does it mean to be Christian? Well, there's this picture over here of St. Francis, or St. Bridget, and here's a story of how they served the Creator. Right? And then obviously not all of the saints share the same way of being faithful to God. Some of them were pretty odd ducks. I'm a little bit of an odd duck. And so they bear witness to myriad ways of being faithful that people have found helpful through the years. And so I think it helps us to remember that there's this broad horizon of quote-unquote how to be Christian. And so even when the church tried to get rid of icons, the common people just kept using them anyway because they found them helpful. And so the icons have lived on as an important tool. So why do we have icons here at Blue Ocean? The short answer is that there are certain Bible stories and stories of saints that I find to be both moving and helpful for our congregation particularly. So during the pandemic, I, I found a couple of saints um, who were just courageous people who took care of the sick during the plagues and at great risk to themselves. I think St. Rocco is back on that table and he's always got his dog with him because he saved a dog too. And so St. Rocco, we'll talk about. Some of the saint icons we have are queer saints. And so I just personally find it really comforting to know that the stories of queer people um, had been 
accepted, maybe not in the same way we might understand it, but they've been accepted and remembered as queer by believers through the ages. And there aren't that many of them, but I think it's powerful for people like me to understand that we gays have always existed in the life of the church. Whether that was outwardly recognized or not, we exist, there we are. Some of the saints that we have are women who had tremendous leadership gifts, oversaw um, giant convents and educational schools and such, and they have been accepted and remembered for their gifts, even revered by believers through the ages. Some of the saints are courageous men who stood up to the forces of empire, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or who built bridges to people of other faith traditions, like St. Francis, or who were peacemakers, or who had maybe a more holistic relationship to nature. And they've been accepted and remembered by believers through the ages. In other words, many people whose stories may have seemed a little bit subversive in their time, but whom the believers had said, no, there's something here and we want to remember them, and we want to honor them also as faithful to God. So Ken and I chose a couple of icons pretty early on for our altar when we started, because, I mean, we've got this little, I'm sorry, but kind of janky Ikea altar. <laughs> I need to probably put a drill to it or something, but we're like, we should probably like bring this up maybe a touch. Um, one of the first ones that we got here is this one here. Um, it's the icon of the Panagia Paramythia be able to look at it when you come up a little bit closer. Um, and we got this one, it's sometimes called the Mother of Comfort. It's a black Madonna and child. It dates from the 7th century, and I believe it can still be seen. It was, it was one that's depicted on a monastery in Greece. And we liked the reminder that before white Europeans socially constructed race the way they did, the early church was well aware that Jesus was a brown-skinned human. And I think the last image we need in our churches today is white Jesus. And we, even here at Blue Ocean, are still working to get that concept kind of worked out of our theologies and culture. And so we want to remember front and center each week, Jesus was a brown man. It's All Saints Sunday, so it seems appropriate, I think, to remember the saints who came before us. I know some of you brought some pictures. Um, I have a couple of pictures of my loved ones back there we've got a few pictures of blue oceaners who have died and who we still hold in our hearts if you go back there you'll see like ken and sue Eckstein and caleb brokaw and like a couple i forgot like matt um not matt johnson he's back there too but matt bush who was tim bush's son um and it just reminds me that they're here with us and so we can remember anyone that you would like just by lighting a candle and acknowledging their presence in the communion of saints so I know I've preached before about how you know, the popular images of heaven and hell, that those aren't really found in the Bible. Those are images that came into popularity during the Middle Ages through art, through literature, like Dante's writings. And in the Jewish tradition, um, there was like, what was imagined was more like a holding place that's called Sheol. It's the realm of the dead. And it's a place where people go to wait for a later time when God will judge humanity and make the world right. right? That's the hope. And maybe we call that heaven. And so we see this idea of like all the people who have gone before us being together somewhere throughout the scriptures and especially in the early parts. Right? So in the Hebrew Bible, dying is often talked about as being gathered to your people. Being gathered to your people. 
It says this about Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Abraham, Ishmael, Aaron. At one point it says the whole generation was gathered to their people over and over and over. The New Testament uses a little bit different language. It calls that the communion of the saints. Right? So in the letter to the Hebrews, um, it pictures like a crowd of people who are together kind of with us, cheering us on toward greater love and a greater unfolding of God's good realm. And so this imagination for people being gathered together after death is very much woven into large parts of the Christian tradition. Right? So in the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic branches of the faith, um, it might be more common for believers to do things like talk to people who have passed on, or even pray to those who are deceased, ask them to like intercede with the creator on their behalf. And I don't mean like praying to them, like worshiping them or asking for their power, but more like saying, like my grandma Swan, who I really loved, died when I was 15. It's a little like saying, hey grandma, if you can hear me, if you're anywhere maybe close to like the big guy, maybe somebody else who could help me, if you could just like put in a good word, we could use some assistance over here. We know we can pray to the Creator through Jesus. We know we have that kind of direct contact that's part of our theology, but it's like a little kid asking their parent for something. If the parent's not answering in time, you're like, okay, get your siblings on the job, right? Six some other people on them. That's a little bit the idea. Um, is it perfect theology? It doesn't matter. I think it's a perfectly fine way of interacting with the communion of the saints. I know many people have experienced like just talking to people who have passed on. I feel particularly um, just sort of tender in this subject this year because I think we've, I was counting on the way to church, I think we've had nine people lose parents this year in our congregation. That's a lot. And we had somebody last night who actually lost a spouse. Um, and so I don't know if this is helpful or not, but I do like to sometimes just offer like, what's helpful to me in thinking about the afterlife. And so I'll just speak more personally. I, I'm a little bit of a nerd, and so physics helps me. And so I know that there's theoretically 10, maybe 20 dimensions. And these bodies that we're in experience three, maybe four, right, time. But we experience time in a very linear way, but we're told theoretically time exists all at once, so that's weird, but maybe it does. And so I just imagine that maybe we're just sort of liberated from the constraints of these four dimensions, and we experience a fuller reality of more dimensions until such a time as all of those dimensions eventually combine to bring about God's fullness. Is that factually accurate? I don't know. That's just how I think about it. It's been one of the ways that um, has kind of tethered me to my own faith and given me hope. And so I love talking to and thinking about my loved ones um, as being here. And so I've got like my Aunt Carol back there and my Grandma Swan. And then we've got the icons of some of these other saints that we'll be talking about for the coming weeks. And we can just remember together that we are surrounded by a great company of people who have witnessed what it means to go through this life, the goods, the bads, the uglies, and who are cheering us on to just run this race of faith and love. So with that, we usually do a minute or two of just silence or guided meditation. I thought maybe we just do silence this morning, knowing people make noise, it won't be perfectly silent. And we can just spend this time just sort of imagine ourselves being surrounded um, by the people that we would like surrounding us in the company of saints. I'll let you know when that time is up.
So Creator, we thank you that we're not alone. We thank you that we are joined through time and space, the communion of saints and people who are cheering us on and sharing our joys, rooting for us to choose the paths of love and the paths of wisdom that help us to thrive. I ask that you would help us to experience that communion of the saints cheering us on in moments when we could use a little uplift. We honor the people who have gone before us and the faithful through the ages, and we remember them this morning. Amen.